This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Ultraviolet, episodes five and six. Whatever indoctrination you've been subjected to, you must try to understand we're, we're more like you than not. We didn't have any souls or desires beyond feeding. Why should we want to go on? We're not machines. By your morals, we, we do terrible things, so does God. You forgive him because you believe he loves you. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast stored in a UV vault. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? We're almost done with Ultraviolet. Didn't it feel like we just started? I mean, these, these little six-episode runs, they just they run by. It's, uh, it's, they're over before they begin. Well, they don't wear out their welcome. At least this show hasn't. That's true. But... From what I'm told by you, this show is particularly popular because it has spawned a bunch of fan fiction even post its like two month run. Well, it's interesting. I have picked a few different stories and I'll let you pick which one you think we should read today. But uh, I was just quickly looking at them. Now, I haven't read any of these. So as per usual, I can't. You make no promises. Yeah, I make no promises how good these are, how bad or how amusing or interesting or anything. But one was written this year in March. Wow. So this show's still going strong, eh? Well, strong enough that it at least has some sort of fan base. There's not a lot of other stuff I found. There's not a lot of loving recreations of characters, uh, uh, drawings or paintings or anything. But there's there's still a fan base for this show that, you know, has, has been gone for a long, long time now. No Funko Pop Father Pierce's? <laughs> no, not, not yet. I wish. That'd be fun. Well, why don't we do the fan fiction before we get into these episodes, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll, fin- we'll wrap this series up, I guess. Why don't I give you the titles to these, and if you want to narrow them down or you want more information about the story to pick the perfect one, we can do okay. that. But I'll, I'll first, I'll, I'll give you the titles of what these stories are. You know I love to judge a book by its cover, so... That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so the first story is called Support. The second story is called Countrymen. Then we have Faded, Glass Houses... Credo, and finally, Mi Maxima Culpa. Well, one of them is in line with the naming of the episode, so that's Mm -hmm. a real point in its favor. I am going to just choose based on title. I don't need to know any more information. Other than maybe, uh, tell me which of these two I'm going to present to you is shorter. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm interested in Countrymen, Mm -hmm. or I'm interested in Latin title. There's something very interesting about one of the ones you chose. So let me first tell you about Mea Maxima Culpa. It's uh, 999 words. It's an uh, angst romance. And Countryman is 561 words. It's a lot shorter. Here's what's weird about it. From what it says is it's a Buffy the Vampire Slayer ultraviolet shared universe. Absolutely. That is definitely... I don't want to hear an angsty romance. I want Buffy the Vampire Slayer to pop up and hang out with Idris Elba. Maybe they'll kiss. It'll be great. Now, again, I make no promises because who, who knows what that means. So, the story you've chosen is Countryman by Andraste. I'm getting my tea. I'm wrapping myself in a blanket. Get comfortable. Summary. Giles had come to accept that one met odd people in hell. What an odd sentence. Okay, here we go. Wait. Before you start, yeah, is this all going to take place in hell, do you think? I, <laughs> one can hope, right? 
Giles had come to accept that one met odd people in hell. He had seen all sorts of things since the world collapsed piece by piece into the portal glory opened, and he lost all that were left of those he knew and trusted. He had met what appeared to be two copies of the same man, one older than the other, both wearing red sunglasses and outlandish costumes. A man made of metal with hooves instead of feet. Something appalling with teeth where its eyes should have been. What he hadn't expected to meet, although it was no more inherently improbable, was another English vampire hunter. Ooh. I know, yeah, I know. Everyone's pulled in already. The thousand new dangers that he had been exposed to had not swept the old ones away entirely, and to his black amusement, it was one of the foes he had been fighting since his youth that almost killed him at last. The demon had cornered into an abandoned building, leaning in for the kill when he heard the shot and watched in disbelief as the creature crumbled to dust. It took him a moment to realize that there had been a connection between the two. You're lucky, his rescuer, a man he judged to be roughly his own age, said. If I had bitten you... I know how to deal with vampires, Giles said. He realized he'd spoken sharply. Thank you for the assistance. It's just that I was surprised. Where I come from, we did things in a more traditional fashion. With a pang of loss, he thought of some of the ways Buffy had dispatched her queries over the years. Still, the statement was broadly true. This is terrible, by the way. I'm just Let me just say it right oh, away. I'm loving it. The bullets are made of reinforced carbon, the other man said. Then he smiled wryly. Or they were, since that was the last of them. I'll have to resort to stakes as well. He still tucked the gun back into the holster under his jacket anyway. He didn't seem surprised that Giles knew about vampires. It's the wrong new. Knew about vampires, but perhaps his whole dimension was full of them. I am loving the tension of when they're going to reveal which ultraviolet character this is. They're really <laughs> stringing it along. I think it's going to be Rice, personally. It better be. I don't think any gun would work on the foes from my reality, although the way things were now, who could say for certain? A fortunate coincidence, I'm not certain it was one of ours. Those exploded when neutralized. Incidentally, I'm Pierce Harmon. You could say that I was a vampire hunter in a former life. Well, we were wrong. <laughs> Giles shook the hand he was offered. Rupert Giles, and likewise. Shall we go then? In my experience, where there's one, there are usually others. You mean together? Why? Offers of help or companionship had become rare since the world ended. You're a fellow countryman, apparently in more ways than one. Besides, now you owe me a favor. How is he a countryman in more ways than one? There's only one way. He's English and he's a vampire hunter. But that has nothing to do with the country they're from. It's more of a metaphor. <laughs> all right. For all Giles knows, this man could be a demon or a vampire himself, planning to eat him or put him to some other purpose. It was impossible to tell with the sky above an improbable shade of purple. Still, he'd been convinced he was about to die five minutes ago. What did he have to lose? He nodded. Very well, then. I'll try to find my thermos. <laughs> 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 Ten minutes after that, they were drinking lukewarm tea together in what seemed to have been a bowling alley before Armageddon. Giles reflected that it was probably an improvement over being drained by vampires, whatever their origins. The end. They never talked about Father Pierce's cancer. I'm assuming he beat it. In this world, in this crossover. I mean, this also took place in an apocalypse where they both went to hell and I don't know. It doesn't feel like they thought this out all the way. I mean, Giles is a fine character to choose if you're going to choose one from the Buffyverse, but Father Pierce, I mean, come on. So this was written February 26th, 2005. Happy 15th anniversary, story. <laughs> yeah, so the one called, uh, what was it called? Support. That was written March 8th of this year, 2020. Isn't that crazy? Oh, man. 
during the pandemic. So someone had a lot of free time and was like, eh, can write a little <laughs> fan fiction here? Well, if there's any of our time to, to write a fan fiction for a show that's been off for 15 years. Maybe I'll cajole you into a bonus episode where you read us the latest fan fiction. Maybe, maybe. Anyways, there we are. That was, uh, that was something. Well, Jordan... What a treat to uh, combine those two universes. I suppose. But let's let's get into the the uh, canonical universe of Ultraviolet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. With Terra Incognita. Here is the IMDb summary for episode five, Terra Incognita. A man suffering from sickle cell anemia and his sister arrive at the airport from Brazil looking for Dr. March, as in Robert March, Angie's dead husband. And that was courtesy of Camus716. That kind of gives away a, a bit of a little surprise we get in the in the episode, doesn't it? I guess so. I think it's a pretty early reveal, though, that she's looking for Dr. March. And when, when Angela walks in, she's like, Dr. March is a man. Yeah. And they're like, she's like, I'm Dr. March. They're like, no, you're not. She's like, yes, I am. They're like, no, you're not. And that goes on for like five minutes. They're, it's like that old joke. It's just like, the woman can't be a doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. The old, uh, my kid died in the car accident and the, and so did the, the dad and then the, they go and the doctor says, I can't perform surgery on him because he's my son. That joke? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Which, by the way, <laughs> I told as cleanly as possible there. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever actually heard it told correctly. <laughs> well, it's not a joke. It's a it's, what do you riddle. Call it? Like a, a riddle. Yeah. So a man and his son are both killed in a car accident. When they're rushed to the hospital, the man is dead, but the son is still alive. And the doctor says... I can't perform surgery on him because he's my son. How could that be? And the whole whole problem, of course, is you're supposed to realize, oh, yes, the mother could also be a surgeon. What a time. What a time where that was <laughs> impossible to figure out. Yeah, the 80s, I guess. All right. Well, let's start the episode now that we've got to the bottom of that riddle. <laughs> yeah. I want to do more riddles. You showed up with a parachute in the middle of the forest. How did you get there? <laughs> how, how did you get there? I don't know. It was just none of these dumb ones. Like, what am I thinking? Was what they always are. Um, well, this this episode that we're going to talk about, it does indeed start off at an airport, but not with the parachute. It starts off with this brother and sister arriving from Brazil, going through customs. And they're a bit nervous, it seems like. And they're, uh, to be clear, an adult brother and sister. And um, it seems like everything's going to go all right until one of the customs agents notices the brother seems to be bleeding from his ear. Which is a giveaway that something's not right. I mean, if you're going to try to get through customs at the border don't be bleeding from the ear and he's sent to the airport doctor yeah where was that because that's what they that's what it looked like it looked like they sent him to the resident doctor inside the hospital it's like ooh, bougie yeah i it did appear to me like this was like a doctor who works at the airport and maybe that's a thing i have no idea but i was the first time i've ever seen an airport doctor before are you a doctor sir oh i'm an airport doctor how can that be <laughs> you're a woman <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, but the thing with him is, not only is he bleeding from his ear, he also has a uh, bloody neck wound, similar to what we've seen on previous uh, infectees who have been, like, glamoured by the vampires. Mm-hmm. So it means it's time to call in the old Code 5 squad and get to the bottom of whether uh, whether there's a vampire involved in this particular case. Mm-hmm. So the brother and sister are transported back to headquarters, and they kind of, like, talk to the sister and she sort of explains that they've come here to the uk because they're searching a cure for the brother and they need to talk to the famous world famous blood scientist dr march but of course as we know based on that synopsis it's uh angela march's husband not mm-hmm. uh, herself in, in fact they're looking for and so they, they both won't... have the same job huh 
Yeah, they both. That's where they met. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Blood school. Blood school, yeah. <laughs> Blood school high. And like the sister won't quite buy that her husband's dead. She keeps like implying, like, is he really dead though? Yeah. And we come to learn that brother has or had sickle cell anemia. Basically what it seems like is, well, he was in Brazil, a bunch of probably code five doctors gave him a bunch of blood transfusions, which seems to have stopped his sickle cell anemia but has caused some new problem like they think it might be a hemorrhagic fever potentially but essentially any old wound he's had on his body is just reopening up and so he's just like bleeding out of all kinds of holes in his body it was actually a pretty gross effect because i think later on he's got like on his back he has some sort of what looks like a like a raised bruise and she just like uh, dr marsh is like touching it she just touched it and just started bleeding everywhere and i was like oh this is gross it's true and she sort of that's her kind of gig this episode is investigating his like wounds and what's going on and it does explain why the neck wound hasn't healed like whatever's going on is causing this to like keep happening and one thing that uh dr march sort of notices because we see all these open wounds on his body is it's just like she sort of pinpoints that it seems like the vampires were feeding on him sort of but like every time a vein collapsed like, you know, shooting heroin, they'd move on to a new vein in his body, hence why he's covered in all these holes. But she does note it wasn't like a feeding frenzy. It seemed to have taken place over months as if they were tasting him. Yeah. <laughs> They're having little samples. It was a little, he was a little uh, a moosh boosh. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, of course, they're trying to figure out. They know these two are tied up with the vampire somehow. So uh, Mike and Rice head off to the airport and sort of interview a flight attendant about the flight from Brazil, if there was anything strange about it. And she's like, nothing strange about the flight. But uh, before we left Brazil, there was a last minute addition of some medical supplies to the cargo hold. So they head down to the old baggage area where they find um, that there's a box the size of a coffin. And there were five more there originally, but they've been loaded onto the back of a truck. It looks exactly like a coffin, except it has... Uh, which you'll find to see is sort of like a digital lock on it. So you have to put in a code to open. But I actually just thought it was like a fancy modern coffin. I didn't think it was supposed to be anything other than that. It does look a little bit like something you'd put Spock in and shoot him out the airlock when he died. It does, yeah. Yeah, futuristic coffin. And and spoiler, it is a coffin. And it does have like a little countdown timer. Like there's some sort of digital lock on it that won't open mm-hmm. until I guess this timer reaches the end. So they, they kind of have six hours before these coffins start opening. And of course, as we said, five of the coffins have been already loaded on a truck. And when this uh, sketchy looking long haired dude sees Mike poking around, he jumps in the truck and like drives off from the airport. And now it's Mike's job to basically chase down this truck and get those coffins back. Meanwhile, Rice stays at the airport and they do a they do a quick x-ray of the remaining coffin to see if they can see what's inside. I don't remember that. Did they? They did. They did. But as since it's a vampire, there's nothing inside. Oh, OK, well, that that's why I didn't remember. I guess I was looking to. <laughs> but it, it is it is our basically confirmation that these these are coffins. They are full of vampires. And what are they up to? But at least at least they've managed to capture one of them. And uh, yeah. they're going to take that one back to headquarters. But Mike, of course, as I mentioned, is on the tail of the the truck that's on on the road. And he's given backup. Like, you see him driving. You see there's, like, they've sent a van full of SWAT team members to back Mike up for whenever they pull this truck over. And they're, they're basically trying to And a to helicopter. See, and a helicopter. That's true. Mm-hmm. And they're basically trying to see where it's headed. They're hoping they can figure out, oh, where's the truck going? If we can figure that out, maybe we can catch the whole, like, cabal, whatever's going on here. But they sort of follow them. And they stop at a gas station for a quick fuel up and mike tries to spy on them and it becomes quite clear very quickly that like oh uh 
they know Mike's following them. They know they're being followed and they're not really going to ever arrive at their destination despite the countdown happening in the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. And Mike basically has to do a little bit of convincing that like Father Pierce wants them to keep following. But Mike's like, listen, they're never going to go where they're going to go. We need to take these people into custody. Let me pull them over. So they do eventually like pull over the truck and do a whole squad like the whole squad pulls up and pulls out their guns and pulls these guys out of the truck and they throw up in the back. And of course, there's no there's no coffins back there. It was a decoy. Here's the thing. I think Michael kind of sucks at this point in the show, but more often than not, he is he does seem to be right. It's just the way he goes about things that I'm like, Mike, you suck. He's not he's not he's not a great team player, I guess. So even when he's right, no, he's, he, a, he's a he's a very bad team player. But yes, his sort of uh, plot line runs into a bit of a dead end here because all they find is the old tires in the back of that truck. So popping back to the coffin that uh, Rice has and moved back to the headquarters for them, they've sort of prepped like a, I guess they have a containment room for Code 5. So yeah. like it's a big glassed in area full of, I guess, ultraviolet lights so they can like zap a vampire if they need to. But they're basically trying to take this one alive so they can maybe learn a little bit more about what the Code 5s are up to. And there's a lot of them just like shots of them standing, looking in the glass at the coffin that's not doing anything. They're like, yep, still still standing there. Got to watch that clock countdown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but when Rice kind of gets back to headquarters, Father Pierce is sort of, he hasn't done a great job interrogating the sister from Brazil. So he kind of put Mike, he put, he put not Mike, he puts Rice on the case now that he's back because he's hoping she'll be more forthcoming to Rice. And... I mean, the subtext here is that the priest is doing this because they're both black, right? I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. But I, that's the same thing I thought. I was like, well, maybe not the most classy thing. I mean, you could also read it that maybe it was she knew he was a priest and she didn't uh, she wasn't having any of the, the religious connotations of having him question. But later on, you do see that she's got her own sort of religious beliefs. So maybe that was what it was instead. Yeah, and basically Rice takes his sister and he's he's going to take her back to her hotel, but they give him some time to chat and the sister requests to like stop by the waterfront because she's going to, as you mentioned, she's a bit religious herself, but more of an indigenous religion that's sort of been trampled on by uh, Catholicism that has like absorbed some of their traditions, but still she keeps her own too. So she wants to go to the waterfront mm-hmm. to put some stuff in the water and to, to pray for her brother basically. Um, so they go to this waterfront where they have a chance to like discuss religion and colonialism and it, it's, you know, an interesting scene, but maybe not the most uh, plot moving one. I thought she was just making um, uh, little boats to put in the water at first. Did you, uh, did you catch on the waterfront there that you can see the Millennium Dome under construction? No, I didn't. Yeah, it's in the background, you can see them uh, pr- building the Millennium Dome. <laughs> Times have changed, you know? At any rate, though, what kind of happens over the course of Rice and the sister hanging out is she tells March that there is definitely a way for Angela's husband to come back. And he really needs to think about that if he wants to help Angela. Like, maybe he should help her get her husband back. And Rice is starting to lose patience because she is obviously quite on the Code 5 side and has a very positive outlook on what they're doing and how they've helped her brother. But he finally kind of cajoles her into coming clean. And she admits to be traveling with the coffins. And she finally tells him, he's like, we were taking them to a warehouse near here on the waterfront. And she she basically is like, I'll take you there to see it if you really want to go. And we have them driving up to this warehouse. And Rice gets out and she's sort of like peeking into the warehouse. It's uh, locked, but he can see inside the coffins are in there. And he's kind of like surprised. But of course, it's not unguarded. So Rice gets uh, classic noir detective style bonked in the back of the head by a security guard. 
and I don't know if we'll, we'll continue with his plotting, but basically he's knocked out and wakes up and he's being locked in with all the coffins. It's true. And the security guard actually, uh, not berates, but uh, asks the sister. She, he's just like, I thought you were going to bring Dr. March. That was the whole point was to get her, I guess, in order to like get the husband. So whatever the plan was here, I think there may have been some element of them maybe getting caught. Oh, and I should say, I don't know, did they ever say if the sister uh, had been glammed as well, or is she just pro-vampire? Unclear. They never decided whether she, they never showed whether she had been glamored or not, but um, she certainly is (laughs) pro-glampire. She's pro-glampire. But but what's interesting, though, is this is something that's uh, a sort of plot point or theme that's run through the entire series, and we'll play again in the next episode as well, of vampires or code fives or whatever you want to call them have really done a pretty good job in this world of just arguing their way to have people on their side, making their cause known and uh, convincing people that they should, for for whatever means, that, that these, they sh- they're not the bad guys. And this is another lady who's sort of on the fence because they've done stuff for her family, right? Yeah, they're great debaters. They really, they really bring people on board. They are great debaters. But yes, as you mentioned... When Rice wakes up after getting clonked in the head, he's now locked inside this warehouse with the four coffins that are counting down. And there's only five minutes left on the countdown. So things are looking pretty grim for uh, old Von Rice. The whole thing here is, and, it, and it's done pretty well, it's, there's this tension of like, oh no, they're all going to open and he's stuck. And he seems very nervous about it as well because he can't get out. I think he even says at one point, like, if they come out, I'm dead. But have we seen anything up to this point that would show that the vampires are so extraordinarily stronger or quicker or could dominate him way. Obviously, it'd be four on one, but the way he's acting is like, it's a foregone conclusion. And I'm like, but I don't think we've seen the vampires, you know, physically dominate people uh, other than maybe those two muggers. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen any super strength, any speed. No flying. But I would also say we haven't seen evidence against it either. That's true. That's true. Because they're always so in shadows. We really have no sense of their true ability, even in the next couple episodes where we'll get to like spend some time with one of the Code Fives. He's not really there for a fight, so we still never get a sense of it. Right. To your point, though, about whether, like, what he's afraid of, it's we get a little piece of backstory for him later on in the episode about, you know, remember how we were talking about him in a friendly fire incident mm-hmm. when he was a soldier? That was kind of like an earlier plot point. He kind of lays out what happened and probably why he's so afraid here is he talks about how what really happened to his squad was in Desert Storm, a group of vampires attacked them, like attacked his whole squad. And they were just, I guess, slaughtering his squad. And he didn't stick around to fight. He actually fled and hid. And the only reason he survived is they found him last and were still even eating him, apparently, when the sun came up, which was the only thing that kept him alive when the rest of his squad died. So not not a uh, courageous thing for him to be proud of. And, and he's also seen the impact of what, what they can do, I guess. Yeah, I think that is supposed to imply a certain level of, I guess, combat readiness on part of these Code Fives. Right. At any rate, feeling like he's going to die, he, he you know, does a few last calls before, before the coffins open. He calls Mike and Mike lets him know that he got the address to the warehouse he's at from uh, the truck driver that he pulled over but they're still 20 minutes away by helicopter so he's not going to make it in time and then rice calls up dr march for a final goodbye and he can't bring himself to say anything but it's very funny i hadn't noticed it in previous episodes but i guess there's like there's a secret crush going on here that they sort of layer in the very end of this episode that rice has a crush on dr march 
I guess they very, very lightly put that through the episodes. They, they sort of, this comes out more so in, in this episode. But do you remember many instances in the earlier episodes? I mean, I think there was a little bit of like, maybe some passing glances at best. I mean, I think if I were to go back and look, I might see it a little more. But it's certainly, I think, certainly from the actor's point of view, I wonder if they were told but chose to play it very downplay. Because, I mean, they are both very serious about their job. So it makes sense they wouldn't show it very much. And we're just seeing it in glimpses in this episode. I don't know. That was an interesting turn anyway. I hadn't seen it coming. Mm -hmm. But anyways, he basically calls her not only was he calling to say goodbye, but he was also not able to say the feelings he had so it just is sort of a call where a silent call and she kind of knows as well this unspoken bond they have and then it's like well he's gonna die now to the vampires but essentially this all leads to basically a scene where rice seems to resign himself to dying and he like takes out his gun and prepares to blow his brains out in front of the coffins before the countdown hits zero and you know it was a very effective sequence like Idris Elba actually like played it very dramatically and I quite I quite enjoyed it like he did a good job with the scene there was a a palpable sense of tension and foreboding that's that's the end of his character which it very well could have been I mean we're nearing the end of the show yeah I honestly for a second thought that perhaps this was going to be a major character death uh which I was like cool that'd be awesome but it's not and it should have been Father Pierce, if anybody. <laughs> you really want Pierce to die. I'm over him. So you're over Pierce like I'm over Michael. There you go. Anyway, uh, before Rice can go through with his suicide, though, he seems to get an idea, like something crosses his mind. And we see him as he's looking at these coffins. I think they're in their last like minute to 30 seconds of countdown. And they're all starting to depressurize, which I've never seen a coffin do before. It's kind of cool. Like they're all just shooting steam out like they're under high pressure and like steam shooting everywhere. Would they have to be under high pressure? Is that something you need as a vampire? I think it was just a cool effect that the props department said they could pull off. Yeah, probably. Because I was like, are they cooking in there? Is it that to speed up the, the cooking time on the vampires? But yes, it did look cooler to go and then open up that way. Yeah, I think they're freeze dried, maybe. <laughs> but as you mentioned, he does come up with a really good plan. And I don't think I would have been smart enough to have put two and two together, which is Vampires sure explode real big. That's true. Once you kill them, they do explode real big. And I didn't see where he was going with this at first. So uh, I was very like, what is he up to? So he sort of last minute, he realizes, okay, I have a kind of one ditch effort. He goes over to one of the coffins and he starts fiddling with the timer. And I think he starts pulling out some uh, wires and it makes the timer go faster. And he starts pulling it towards the doorway. And just as the timer finishes its, its run the coffin opens up he starts shooting at the vampire immediately and jumps out of the way and the vampire explodes and blows open the doors to uh the warehouse he's in so the other vampires haven't opened up he's now has at least a door open and he's got rid of one vampire so well done rice true he uses he uses their own explosive abilities against them to escape his perilous fate (laughs) however i will mention I really like the idea and the way it looks in this show. We've talked about before what it looks like when the vampire kind of explodes like a little mini supernova. However, the consistency of how big this explosion is seems to vary from vampire to vampire. It is wildly different from episode to episode for sure. We have this one will blow up in a door. We've had an entire apartment blown up. And then later on, no spoilers for the next episode, someone blows up and people are right around them and everyone's fine. Yeah, I think someone just turns their back to the explosion. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. But anyways, it doesn't matter. The fact the fact is that it's fun to watch. At any rate, Mike finally arrives by a helicopter. Rice is, of course, safe. And he says, well, uh, you got here too late. The other vampires escaped. 
and they as they're sort of going over what happened they discover the sister's body in the river nearby i guess she felt so guilty over what she did to rice that she committed suicide in the river or at least that's what they say or a vampire got her we don't know it was strange i was just like i did i didn't follow they're like it was guilt i'm like okay if you say so (laughs) yeah they're just like "Uh, how'd she die guilt like hey checks out for me <laughs> and uh, we hop back to headquarters because while well, this countdowns of these coffins have been happening, Father Pierce and Dr. March have been gathered to watch their own Code 5 coffin open and see what's inside. And what's inside is uh, an older gentleman seems very nonchalant about his circumstances of waking up in this uh, containment unit. And um, he mostly is there to... He really, he really baits Dr. March about her husband. He's really like bothering her about her husband and her kid. <laughs> Yeah, he's very cool, collected, and he's also quite biting with his comments. Like he's apparently all the vampires are very good at uh, manipulating people. What I really liked about this was the set design is the containment area is a lot of two-way mirrors. And they ended up shooting a lot of scenes through the mirrors. So often you'll just like have shots of nothing. And you're supposed to just know that there's like I, I liked how they use that to good effect. Like when the coffin opens you like they shoot it through the mirror so you don't see anything you don't see anything get out and you just see reactions of everyone reacting to whatever they're seeing and even next episode they'll do it a bit is like they'll have reaction shot cutaways but they'll cut to a mirror shot so you never you can't see the vampire yeah. I, don't, I, I liked what they were doing i thought it was a cool idea i don't I mean, i'm sure other vampire shows have done it but I, I i just hadn't seen anything quite like it that popped to my mind no and and they're they're pretty consistent about it. it's it's something they've created in this world about you know the technology can't can't see them and and they really they really play with that every episode. But one thing we, we learn, Luke, and I think it's here, is this where we learn about the synthetic blood? One of the many arms and uh, these sort of science experiments that these uh, these vampires are doing. Synthetic blood. I did, before we move on, I want to point out one thing I read in the, in the YouTube comments mm-hmm. this episode. You were talking about the technology and like kind of how it's all been very consistent and there's been interesting how they're using it. Mm-hmm. One person in the comments noted, because this vampire is being held in this containment room, and they're watching him through a two-way mirror, and they talk to him via a PA system. Mm. And someone rightly points out, a PA system is a recreation of someone's voice, like a telephone, so it wouldn't work. And I was just like, oh, he got you. You know what, though? Good point. A real, a real nerd note. Um, but also, you don't know what kind of technology they have. Maybe they've they've figured that out in their whatever they have, whatever their headquarters are. Fair enough. I mean, if anyone's going to figure it out, a PA system for vampires is going to be these guys. Fair enough. You're right. Maybe they have special technology. But you're right. Let's get back. Yes, take that nerd. Let's get back to the technology of synthetic blood because that's sort of the culmination of this whole plot. This mm-hmm. brother who has been dying of sickle cell, the transfusions in Brazil, them coming over here to find a blood doctor. Basically, the vampires seem to have been attempting to perfect a synthetic blood so that they no longer have to drink human blood. And the side bonus, I guess, is they could cure a lot of diseases with this like synthetic blood. And they kind of discover it by looking at it in a microscope and realizing all the blood cells are too perfect. Like you couldn't, there's no natural imperfections. So that's how March sort of puts together. This is all fake blood. And one of the implications being that maybe the vampires are really a little bit of the victims here for how they're being treated if they're going out of their way to not only help people but they're also trying to come up with an alternative source to survive that they don't need humans anymore and it is kind of why everyone's like the sister this vampire out of the coffin everyone's talking about her husband because apparently he was such a great researcher 
They really need him to finish perfecting his synthetic blood. They're almost there, but they actually need him to get them the rest of the way. And that's why there's so much pressure on talking about him on Dr. Marsh and like trying to convince her that maybe she'd be better off with her husband alive again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that basically wraps up the episode. But before we move on, I think it's time for the what's Christy been up to minute. <laughs> and it, well, but let me mention, it should be what's Kirsty's up to. I will never pronounce it correctly. <laughs> yeah, and what we don't need to do is we don't need to see what France is up to, because once again, Francis is uh, inconsequential to the episode. But Kirsty at least has a plot line. Yes, uh, let's explore this sea story of uh, what she's been up to. So uh, last time we saw her, she was hiring that reporter, and then that reporter seemed to have potentially been turned by vampires. Unclear, mm-hmm. but there was certainly some threat to her life. So Mike's been hearing that this reporter has been contacting his friends and family, and he goes back and talks to his old ex-girlfriend, the MI, the MI4, five, MI5 a secret agent, Francis. Mm-hmm. And he kind of wants her to check up on Christy. And, and so Francis goes around, sees that Christy seems to be hanging out with his reporter a lot, surmises they're probably in a relationship now. and There's nothing to worry about. But she, she does agree to slide a door under uh, or a door, a note under her door to Christy, asking Christy to contact Mike so they can at least have a conversation. And at the end of this episode, Mike gets home and he, he's been contacted by Christy via the most classic way to contact another human being. I can't remember. What, what, did, what did she do? Did she, leave, did she leave a tape for him? Was that what it was? No, she sent him a fax. Oh, she sent him a fax. Right, right. I forgot. Someone else left someone else a tape. Uh, she, said, she sent a fax to Mike's home fax machine that asks him to meet her at the bug bar good name for a bar where would you rather go to the bug bar or the fat boy pub what was that what was it in the previous episode? fat boy cafe fat boy cafe i mean i'm going to the fat boy cafe every time yeah of course uh mike goes to the bar to meet with her and they start chatting and like things seem pretty good at first but mike starts realizing she's not drinking her wine kirsty's being like overly flirty and really being dismissive when he brings up oh i heard you were seeing this reporter and she's she really like is like oh he's just some conspiracy nut don't worry about him i've only got eyes for you mike so he's he's a little suspicious we the viewer a little suspicious because last time we saw her that reporter was Mm -hmm. uh really leaning into her neck (laughs) and uh, mike excuses (laughs) himself to go to the bathroom yeah, so she he goes to the bathroom, and you can see he's having, like, this emotional, like, what do I do, what do I do? And does he just, he just breaks the mirror, is that what he does? Yeah, he, he has his gun, because he's worried he's going to have to shoot her, so he pulls that out, and he didn't bring his vampire detecting attachment, the little video camera that goes on the gun. That's right. So yeah, he, he smashes the mirror in the bathroom so he can take a shard of it and go back into the bar to, like, see if he can catch a reflection of Kirsty in the mm-hmm. in the mirror shard. And we get a real scene with him, like, you know, very nervously, like, pulling up the glass. And for some reason, he has his back to her because that makes it more secretive. He's got his back to her and he's pulling up the glass and he's trying to look around the room to see if he can see her. Um, and he also has his gun on him. Yeah, it's it's a long it's a long pan where, like, we're slowly waiting for the mirror's reflection to potentially get to Kirsty's table. And he's also reaching into his jacket to grab the gun, ready to pull it out and, I guess, blow her away in the middle of this bar. But... He doesn't get to because he gets assaulted. Well, to be fair, there seemed to be two bouncers at that club noticed a man with a gun about to pull it out and really took him down. And I got to say, yeah, those bouncers were great. Yeah, they did their job that day because to be fair, he looks like a crazy person. I mean, absolutely. They he looks like he's about to start opening fire on a crowd, which he is. Yeah. And then so he's down. The gun sort of like uh, falls out of his hand. Kirsty looks over, notices it, realizes in that moment that. Not only 
did he have a gun but he was going to shoot her so she takes off and she's off and that's how that's how she finishes yeah that's the end of the episode she books off knowing now that mike wants to shoot her shoot her dead yeah and uh pretty good ending yeah a good lead up to our final episode let's get into it now and let me just say real quick these two episodes all the episodes it's this is a you know somewhat serialized show but these two episodes almost are directly packaged together like these two go go hand in hand Certainly. I mean, I think the plot lines are separate, but like, the, I think the Kirsty stuff all starts to really get into motion now. Like they're really right. moving and now you're kind of moving on to the next. Right. So here's the IMDb summary for episode six, Persona Non Grata. In, the, in his eyes, there are two Kirsties. If you're human, he wants to protect you. But if you're the wrong one, you don't deserve to live. But you have killed people. There's a war on you. We don't want land. We don't want power. We don't ask for much. Is it it so much? While the team tries to identify their prisoner, and Jacob hiding Christy from Coalfield, Rice and Coalfield both end up searching for Jacob, but for different reasons. And that was courtesy of Camus 716. Camus has done it once again, all six episodes. Did you find that clear? That one was a little confusing to me. Well, I this is an odd episode. I actually, I mean, this is not spoiling anything. I like this episode more than I like the one we previously just talked about. But it really is a bit of a wrap-up episode. And uh, so it's a little bit more convoluted because I think there's a lot of threads they're trying to uh, tie up before the end. Yeah, I would agree. This one's a little more of a convoluted, it's borderline a mess at times, but they're just trying to get everything to Agreed. come together. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. It picks up exactly where the last episode uh, ended. We've got that Code 5 who is in that coffin in custody. They're go- they got to figure out who he is and what his deal is, like what's he up to. Um, and they spend most of this episode trying to discover his identity. I think at the end, they only really put together who he is. I'm just going to give him his name now so we can refer to him by his name so it's not so confusing. But the the Code 5 is named Dr. Paul Hoyle. Right off the bat in this, this inter- they're sort of interrogating, but very lightly interrogating. They're trying to find out uh, basically the vampire's endgame and, and what he has to do with it. And basically all these plot lines we've seen in previous episodes, how they all connect. That's what they're trying to do. But it's not like they go at him that hard. But there's an interesting thing right off the bat. The guy's sort of uh, at a desk uh, or at a table sitting there, and Rice gives him a bag of blood, like which looks like you'd see in a, in a hospital, um, in like sort of a medical bag, like an IV bag. And I guess the idea is, oh, you're hungry, we're going to give you this. But I also didn't know if it was, they were trying to be mocking or something about it. I mean, it doesn't really work with the guy, but it was one of those things where they're like, yeah, here you go, here's a bag of blood. But he doesn't, he literally doesn't bite. No, uh, he smashes it against the window and rubs it like a monkey rubbing feces on on a wall i think both of them are there's a bit of a power struggle and it's like you know they're going look we know you need this and he's basically saying no i'll i can i can last all night my friends and rice is annoyed because that was his blood he just wasted it's true yeah they they, they see the band-aid he so he was like they're like guys we don't have any blood he's like don't worry i got a big arm he's so woozy he's just watching this guy smear his blood everywhere he's like oh come on (laughs) yeah but you're right. Uh, Paul is very uncooperative and they're able to piece together just by looking at him that he's a relatively recent Code 5 transition because he's a, he's a scar in his neck from what was clearly thyroid cancer because that's, I guess, how you treat thyroid cancer. And one thing we learn, a new piece of vampire mythology is 
they can't take his fingerprints because you can't transmit images of vampires you can't take their fingerprints does that make sense to you i didn't think it made sense either it was i just don't i don't know what the science behind it like i understand the i mean what's the science behind an image not showing up but it, it was these weird things i'm like he's corporeal like he's there like you would you have an him. imprint you can touch him so it didn't really make sense but it's like all right guys this episode six sure they can't leave fingerprints either why not Listen, we know those vampires can get physical, if you know what I mean. Well, well, here's what they've pointed out. They're sterile, but they can sure get boners. So, uh, the, yeah, I didn't track the fingerprint thing either. I thought that was a step too far. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, the scenes with Paul are primarily um, tete-a-tete scenes between him and Father Pyrrhus. Right. They're like having discussions about God and about... Paul had cancer and now Father Pierce has cancer. And like, what does that mean to face your mortality? And then like, there's some conversations about how mankind is destroying the rainforest. And like, are they to be trusted? Like the rainforests have been burning for months now and they're blotting out the sun. Like what, what right does humans have to say? Like who gets to live and who gets to die? Yeah. It's that sort of thing we've seen over several episodes now where the vampires are making pretty good arguments. Not only that, they are getting treated like a uh, unwanted minority, but also that humans have been monopolizing and uh, ruining the world. So why do they get to be the moral authority on things? Yeah, and he's pushing Father Pierce. He's like, we've almost perfected synthetic blood, can totally end this whole war. And they're sort of talking about how, you know, because Father Pierce is against vampires for religious reasons a lot of the time. Like we come to find out that a vampire he encountered pushed him to join the to join the priesthood and it's interesting paul sort of makes a case that uh re- all religions are based on the existence of code fives throughout history which is a weird they don't never fully flesh that idea out but i was just like wait 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 what does that mean though you know what's funny that you mentioned that there was a lot of their their sort of tete-a-tetes as you mentioned their conversations back and forth where they make some points that feel like you could get a little deeper into it and really really get into the arguments but they sort of just stay surface level and i guess it's maybe just because of time but it's an interesting thing to want to focus on these arguments but then go like yeah they'll say these kind of odd things that might be really deep and they're like all right moving on you're like well, well what were you talking about yeah i mean the big thing they're getting at here is there's there's supposed to be an implication of a temptation for father pierce that he, like Paul, could accept becoming a Code 5 and not have to die in the way he's facing his mortality currently. Now, but let me ask you, in terms of the show, we haven't learned that much about Dr. Pierce. Did you think at any point in this episode that he was going to decide to become a vampire? No, it doesn't quite land because we haven't seen him have any needs beyond his job. So for him to completely abandon his job to live longer didn't really check out because in order to do that he would basically have to become the thing he's been fighting so it just doesn't make it doesn't really check out yeah like i mean they're playing on the idea and and they've done a good job um uh with him with his cancer diagnosis and he's having a difficulty with it but not enough that he would go against all his beliefs yeah and they try to make it a plot point in that in these conversations he has privately in the cell with the code five paul there's a video or a voice recorder going the entire time, but it's obviously only picking up one side of the conversation. And at some point, Rice will get suspicious of why they're spending so much time together. He'll pull that voice recorder and he he and March will listen to the one-sided conversation and try to glean whether he's been, you know, tempted or whether he's been mm-hmm. turned or something. I don't know if I ever bought it at any point. And I mean, it is played up as more of a betrayal 
because only Dr. March knows about the cancer diagnosis. Like, no one's told Rice yet. So Rice is kind of shocked to hear that, like, there's been this much, comp- like, it's a compromised position he's he feels the father's in. Yeah. Again, I don't know if it entirely lands, but yeah, it, I think it's more that it's seeming that there's cracks being seen in the team, that there's secrets that they're keeping from one another, and he's personally uh, feels affronted by that. And then for Dr. March, like, her role here, too, is she kind of sticks close to paul the code five as well he's she's doing some like medical tests on him to see if they can get any more information on the code fives they're not doing a great job like they strap him to a table and kind of like imply they're going to do a living autopsy they never quite getting around to doing and essentially he's there because like paul's really going to push her on like bringing her husband back like her husband could save the world he she should she should help him and like bring the husband back and really guilt her about like that sort of angle over the course of the episode, she sort of does like some very small tests on him. Like she she cuts his throat at one point and she's I and the the point I was going to make, it looks like at one point she puts a needle into him to pull out blood, but what you see is nothing. Is that because mm-hmm. he doesn't have any blood or that whatever life force they have is invisible? What were they implying there? I think it had more to do cuz they do talk about how the medical tests they're running basically provide no information. Like they just don't even know what they're looking at. And I think, yeah, there's some implication. Maybe they don't have blood or I don't think that it's invisible. I think maybe what it is is like, because we will see blood from a vampire later. That's right. I'm wondering what it is. It's just like medical testing. They don't know what they need to do to get into, or maybe there's just nothing that can be done to a vampire. Maybe like the fingerprints or something. Right. It all comes back to the fingerprints. That's true. But yeah, this is sort of what's going on with her. Is like she's being guilted about her husband and possibly saving the world while trying to run these exams. What I found interesting, though, is it's this one thing that's always, and I think it is maybe a strength of the show, the vampires are always making what on the surface is a very persuasive argument. But I kept noticing the more he, she taught, like, he's like, I knew your husband. He was a great man. He could really change the world. He chose to become a Code 5 because he wanted to help you and save the world. And the entire time he's talking, I'm just like, yeah, but what about her six-year-old daughter? Like... What was the deal with that? Like, that doesn't seem altruistic to me. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, oh, I forgot about the uh, the twin. Yeah, my bad. But yeah, it's funny. They, they they do do a good job, I think, of like avoiding the the parts. That, their arguments always avoid the parts that make them look bad. But if you think about it like for two more seconds, you're like, oh, this is a straw argument you're making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're very good at it. And basically, all we really learn for March's side is... She can't figure out what's going on with vampires medically, but she seems to get the impression that Paul is getting weaker and that he may be dying in captivity. Right. He's a real Shamu. <laughs> what a pull. Meanwhile, let's catch up with Mike. He uh, wakes up on the beginning of this day after he tried to pull a gun on old Kirsty at that bar. And this is where he finds a cassette tape under his windshield wiper of his car. That's what I was confused at. Yeah, so... This time he has, I forgot, I mixed up last time. Uh, this time it's it's uh, clearly, though, a vampire talking. And the way we know it's a vampire talking, because it sounds like Stephen King. It's not Stephen King. It sounds like Stephen Hawking. <laughs> sounds like Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he, it's a text-to-speech message on the tape. He puts it on in his car. And it's basically inviting him to a meeting on a bridge that evening. And if he does this, he'll be able to save Kirsty. he's told. That must be the most exhausting thing about being a vampire, though. Can you imagine every time you want to leave a message for someone, you got to do this whole text-to-speak thing? What a pain. Not worth it. It's like the reverse of what makes your life so convenient now, like speech-to-text. They just don't get any advantage of that. I would say that alone would keep me from being a vampire. I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered. Well, yeah, no, no thanks. (laughs) No thanks. An eternity of inconvenience? You know what I would say to that, Luke? Fangs, but no fangs. Oh, my (laughs) God. 
Um, but what is happening with Kirsty is she's been taken to an office tower with no windows in it, presumably a Code Five business tower, I guess. Yeah. Well, they've they've got money. We found out they have money from before. It does seem that way. And she's being kept there by the reporter kind of as a safe house. Like he tells her this is where he brings his uh, sources who are in trouble. And she's quite freaked out because Mike pulled a gun on her and she doesn't know why. So she wants to be there. She doesn't think she's in any trouble. And we should mention this place's windows are entirely blocked up. Like it looks like a normal building, except it's like it's entirely secure. There's no you can't even see what's outside of the building. Yeah, you're right. I think this is a real implication of how much wealth and power the Code 5s really do have. Mm-hmm. Um, for Kirsty, she'll spend most of the episode by herself, sort of wandering this building. Um, at some point, she comes across an unoccupied security desk and uh, looks at all the security cameras of the building. They all seem unoccupied, except for one in the parking garage. She sees, I guess it's the security guard sitting by himself in his car in the, in the parkade. And if you saw that, you think, you know what I'm going to do if I see a, one security guard sit in a car? I'm going to go down there and take a look at him. That was also, I was just like, what, what does she care that the man's sitting in this car? But she does, in fact, go down to the parquet just to, I guess, chat with the security guard who's taken a nap in his car. And as she gets there, of course, the video cameras didn't show her is her reporter friend is drinking that man's blood. Yeah. And, and they did do, I thought it was a pretty good reveal because, she, you know, she sort of walks in. It's a bit of a dark parking lot. And she's like, is there two guys in the car? What are they doing? And then you get, you know, the old classic, like, turn around, like, I got blood in my mouth. And now, does she, I had to, I'm having trouble remembering what happens here. Does she faint? Does she run into a wall and get knocked unconscious? How does she get knocked out here? Well, they don't show how she gets knocked out. She starts running and he just gets on top of her and it's sort of like fade to black. Then she sort of wakes up. And what's funny is what you think they're going to do here is, she sort of wakes up immediately in the building and the security guard's talking to her like, oh, are you okay? You you fell asleep in the parking garage. You shouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. And what you think they're going to do is like, it was all a dream, but they, they don't at all. Like the security guard leaves and old reporter boy's like, see, he's fine. I know, yeah, I, I sucked all the blood out of him, but you see, he's, he's normal. So don't be freaked out that I'm a vampire. Like he doesn't try to uh, uh, keep the I ruse agree. going at all. I thought it was going to be a, a real gaslighting situation because his neck's fine. He's like, nothing's wrong, lady. I'm like, oh, they're going to trick her into yeah. thinking everything's fine. But yeah, the reporter comes clean about vampires and the vampire immediately. war everything immediately. <laughs> and basically his point is like, yeah, I'm a vampire, but this is going to be the beginning of all of his arguments like we've seen in previous episodes and in this episode of why the vampires shouldn't be hunted and why they're misunderstood. And I don't know if he does the best job, but he does enough that you can start seeing him convincing uh, Kirsty. At least she's becoming more comfortable with him at the very least. Well, he basically finally explains what's happened too. It's like, Mike's become a vampire hunter. Mike killed your fiance, Jack. So that's why Jack's missing. That gets him some points. And he pulled a gun on you last night because he probably thinks you're a vampire. And he kind of explains to her, he's like, yeah, I am a vampire, but like I chose to be one. We never force it on anybody. It's always voluntary. Like, it's just for people who want to do it. We're, we're, we're a peaceful people. He basically makes the case. I love it. We're, it's always voluntary. <laughs> it's always voluntary. Trust me. No one's ever been forced to be a vampire. There's lots of paperwork. So but by the time you get to page 56, if you don't want to be in, you don't have to be in. <laughs> um, hopping back to headquarters, uh, Mike and Rice are kind of put on the task of discovering who this uh, vampire they have been holding Paul is. And Mike basically suggests that perhaps he and Rice should split up to cover more ground, which Rice obviously thinks sounds very suspicious, but they agree. And Mike does this because he basically doesn't have time to investigate Paul the vampire. He needs to figure out what's going on with Kirsty. And 
he essentially recruits uh, Francis, his ex-girlfriend from MI4, MI5. Where's which one is it? I think it's MI5. Doesn't it seem like all every time Michael has a task or a job or a challenge, he just goes to Francis to solve it? You're saying he's a he's a real uh, what's the guy who paints the fence? Oh, yeah, Huckleberry Finn. He's a Huckleberry Finn. Is it Huckleberry Finn or is it, is it uh, Tom Sawyer? I think it's Huckleberry Finn. I've never read either one. I just kind of know that reference. And not even well. I get your point. But yes, I, I think he's he's very good at uh, passing the buck. And I, I know he has this sort of like, I, I don't have time. But it's like, Frances clearly has her own work too. And she's also not that into it. Well, yeah, because the two of them kind of team up to look into what's happened to Christy, who's taken her. And like, Frances is a secret agent, but she doesn't know about vampires. So she's along for the ride, but she's pretty tenuous about it. Because to her, it seems like... Mike is also part of a part of a secret government agency, and it seems a lot like he's about to betray his country to save Christie. And to be fair, he does seem to be putting aside, you know, he's he's lying to his team. He's doing things on his own, which he's kind of been doing since the beginning. So most of his actions are driven by his own feelings more than anything. Yeah. So the two of them head to the reporter's old job. And uh, the boss shows him his old desk and says, oh, that's his computer, but he deleted all the files off of it. But Francis is like, ah, don't worry about it. People think you can delete files. Watch this. And she like, like pushes like control alt C or something and all the files reappear. Well, that's how computers work, Luke. Um, But essentially they're looking into his files. And in a strange coincidence, whatever investigation Rice was on separately also leads him to the same reporter at the same newspaper at the same time so he literally catches mike there yeah I, and i wasn't quite sure how this was all working because it, it again this episode sort of like everything happens kind of fast and furious so michael's working with francis and then rice shows up and you're like why and then michael has to pretend he's not with francis and then i'm like but what are they both investigating? Like, it just was like, the whole point is, point is to have the two of them at odds, but it's like, they just rushed through why. It didn't t- fully make sense how whatever investigation Rice was on that we didn't see led him here. But yeah, essentially Mike pretends he's like, oh, that lady over there I was talking to? I don't know her. And, he, and Rice is like, seems like you do. And he's like, nope, never seen her before. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's also a terrible liar. He's very bad. But they basically now join forces because Rice is like, hey, if you're looking at this reporter, so am I. Let's go check out his apartment. And when they go to his apartment to look around, they find the reporter has a whole file on Mike, like a huge portfolio of pictures of Mike, information on Mike. And Rice is like, well, this is weird. Why does he have this file? And Mike's like, well, couldn't. I don't know. I have no idea. He's like, it has nothing to do with the reason I want to do things separately. And I'm being really sketchy. I I couldn't tell you. But they also find the reporter has been looking into the rainforest fires in South America. And they start thinking, hmm, maybe this all has something to do with environmentalism. Yeah, maybe. The rainforest thing has also come up earlier in the episode when Pierce and I can't remember what the vampire's name is. Johnny? Paul. Paul. Uh, when Pierce and Paul are talking and he's they're having their ongoing uh, conversation, he mentions to Pierce about how bad humans are. And he's like, look what they're doing to the, the rainforest, for example, and blah, blah, blah. So we start getting a theme of there might be something here. Right, right. And unfortunately, they've decided now's the time to look into environmentalism because of the rainforest article, I guess. But it's evening, so it's the end of the day. So everyone decides it's time to go home. And Mike finally goes to his meeting with... Uh, the old reporter on the on the bridge at nightfall the one that was on the cassette tape and basically what we get explained to us here is the reporter wants basically mike to go into the uv vault get the ashes for march's dead husband bring them back here and he'll trade christy kirsty 
for those ashes. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess that is the ultimate plan here. So that's why Kirsty has been brought in. They're hoping Mike will bring these ashes to them. They found another way into the, basically the vault they've been trying to get into. Mm-hmm. And once again, there's a lot of that back and forth of like, Mike, we've been watching you for ages. You're on the wrong side of the war. We knew you're a, we knew you were a smart guy who would see that synthetic blood is good and that you're more of a politician than a strong man. So that's why we've been, you know, coming around. They're really building up his ego as he's like, he's a real free thinker. And it doesn't really seem like it takes much to convince Michael either that the argument the vampire is making is good or that. I think more that Michael has a difficulty to see anything other than just what he wants at the moment. So he does seem to agree and he goes back to the vampire vault, as it were, to go get the canister. Yeah, we see him typing in March's husband's name into a computer, which pulls up where the canister is located in the UV vault. And we see him pulling a canister out and we know he's stolen the ashes from the uh, from the headquarters. Basically, while he's doing that, both Rice and Francis are still investigating the idea of I guess, environmentalists. It seems like Frances, who is the MI5 agent, when she went through the files on the reporter's computer, I guess also came across things related to nuclear energy. And then Rice, separate from that, when he's telling his colleagues at work about the environmentalists, they start talking about how Paul had thyroid cancer and thyroid cancer is related to nuclear radiation. Maybe this has something to do with the nuclear industry. This is where things got really muddy for me. Well, there's a lot of mental gymnastics that the characters need to do to make not only them all sort of show up at the same place, but to connect all of this in a way that makes sense because you kind of at the end see where it's all going, but those connective tissues don't entirely work or make sense. I mean, the core of this like kind of connect the dots, which aren't connecting greatly, is that Rice will go check out this uh, anti-nuclear organization where they think Paul used to work to interview them. And while he's there talking to them, Francis will show up to have a similar line of questioning. And of course, Rice recognizes her from the reporter's office and knows, oh, well, Mike was lying to me. So he takes Francis into custody. They bring her back to headquarters. And she is a spy, so she is justifiably doesn't exactly want to turn on Mike yet. Like, she doesn't know who these people are. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to betray him, but she's already been a little bit worried about what Mike's been up to. So Father Pierce decides there's only one way to prove to her that she can trust them and tell them what Mike's really been up to this whole time. Pierce is in the um, the sort of interrogation vampire cell room with the guy and Francis strapped is... to a table. Yeah, the, guy, the vampire is strapped to a table. Francis and uh, Rice and Angela are behind the glass. And I can't remember the pithy thing that um, that Pierce says, but he's basically like, like, hasta la vista. And he pulls out a gun and shoots the vampire a bunch of times and the vampire explodes as we've seen before in in such a uh shock that it blows all the glass out of the room but what i like though is pierce is maybe five feet away and he just turns his back i mean barely five feet away i know the shock waves are so random for sure (laughs) but anyways the point being um regardless of uh the logistics of it all is that she gets to see that in one quick moment that vampires exist they're vampires hunters that's what Mike's been up to all this time, and uh, she can trust them. Is what what the whole scene is basically supposed to supposed to yeah. do. Yeah, he basically fills them in on all of it, and she doesn't know quite what Mike stole. She thinks he might have stole chemicals from them. He's because she saw them, and she's like, I don't know, some sort of like ashy substance, maybe some chemicals he stole. And they're like, Uh oh, he stole ashes. And we cut to that bridge at night. This is where the handoff's going to happen. But because Francis has come clean, we see that Rice and Angela Marsh are like 
in a, an apartment building well above the bridge holding a uh, rice has got a sniper rifle trained on mm-hmm. them he's ready they're gonna watch this exchange and stop it from happening and mike meets kirsty and the reporter on the bridge they have a little bit of a conversation we're wondering if who's gonna get killed by the sniper and at that moment uh, father pierce appears out of the darkness and kind of arrives to explain that uh mike shouldn't hand over these ashes because with all the investigation they've done over these six episodes essentially he's pieced together what is really going on with the whole plot the vampires have been up to this whole time is so basically and correct me if i'm wrong luke the basic vampire plan is to before you reveal it want me to run down all the things they've been doing so far yes that'd be a good idea so the things they've investigated that leads them to the conclusion of the true code five plan is they've looked at them creating a fake synthetic blood so they won't have to drink humans anymore Mm -hmm. they've looked at Ways for the Code 5 to do non-5 creation of more Code 5s, including that meningitis spread and right. in vitro fertilization. So the how to create new vampires without actually biting someone. Mm-hmm. They've studied the South American rainforests and the forest fires that have been going on there, the ones that have been clouding out the sun for so long. And they've also been interested in Chernobyl, we learn when they're looking at this, because the Paul was a nuclear scientist. They were had him on board because they're interested in Chernobyl. They're interested in nuclear energy. So these are all the pieces they have had over the last six episodes. So this is basically where Father Francis reveals what the true Code 5 plan is. And I'll let you take that away. What I thought the plan was, was to uh, incite or create some sort of n- nuclear disaster to not only kill a big chunk of the humans, but to also lock out the sun for about 12 months which would they think give them enough time to kill the humans and uh then afterwards they would survive on synthetic blood which is not an alternative but a substitute for humans did i get it right or am i missing a detail that's basically it that's the big reveal is the code fives are planning to create a nuclear winter and take control of the planet yeah and you know what i think you've mentioned it. this episode's a little bit messy uh, i still like it but it is a little bit messy but in terms of a very slow way of revealing all you know each episode having another piece of the puzzle i think it all worked out and it makes sense for the plan that the vampires are, are trying to do yeah i think maybe a couple of those last puzzle pieces were a little sloppily placed into into sequence but the big reveal that it's a, a vampire nuclear winter we're looking at is the is the big the big bad i loved it man that's a great yeah. that was great didn't see it coming i was on board so now we have this whole thing where Michael's sort of stuck with knowing what their plan is, but he also wants to get Kirsty back. The vampire's got her sort of holding her in your classic hostage situation. He's, you know, he's holding her by the neck. He's behind her. Michael does have the ashes in the canister with him. Um, and it's like, is he going to do the handoff? And and don't forget, Angela and Rice are up in the, the window up above with a rifle ready to shoot. Yeah. And Mike ultimately, fearing for Chrissy's life, hands the canister of ashes over to the vampire and the vampire is like, oh, thank God, I'm going to finally be able to bring the deceased Dr. March back to life. Luke, there's no way the vampire said thank God. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Good point. Uh, and up in that balcony, though, this is where Rice is like, all right, I got to take this shot now. Like, he's got the ashes. We have to put mm-hmm. him down. But I guess we're supposed to think Angela. We're not sure. I'm not sure what we're supposed to think. There's something about the opportunity that her husband might come back to life that causes her to stop, ask Rice not to shoot. And Rice's love for her kind of 
stays his hand for for a few seconds yeah he really wants to just shoot and just kind of deal the consequences after she just keeps saying to hold for a second just one more second one more second and he's just like okay if she asks if she's asking me i'll do it and i actually thought the tension of the scene was very well done because you keep intercutting with michael and uh reporter vampire boy and then you keep cutting to them and you're like are they gonna shoot are they gonna get the vampire what's happening and i thought that was a a well-executed scene yeah i mean i will say whether it's in for the tension of this scene or even just how plots are told, this series excels at intercutting. They're great at intercutting. I agree. I agree. But we finally do get to see, we've heard about it, that a vampire can come back to life after the ash. Finally. We finally get to see it. And what happens? Mike hands over the canister. Reporter vampire boy, he undoes the canister, pours the, um, what looks more like sand or something at this point, um, onto the ground very gently. I think he does it in like a spiral pattern. And then he pulls out a knife and cuts himself. I think it's his hand or his wrist. So blood does come out. So we see that vampires do bleed. And the blood drips onto the ground matter of the other vampire. And it starts bubbling and oozing. And you start seeing something happen. And then very quickly, it's almost like a, um, a cyclone starts developing, like a little uh, centralized windstorm. It's kind of like they reverse the effect of the supernova when they die. Like it's just kind of like a re- the reverse of how they die brings them back to life, I guess. Mm-hmm. But what's the surprise? And that's the bi- the big surprise that was great because I was fully expecting to see Dr. March. But standing over those ashes now is fiance Jack, who was killed in the first episode. It's an old switcheroo. Yeah. Mike brought Jack back. Yeah. And it's and his hair looks as good as ever. Uh, Ed's great. Because at this point, as he's coming back to life, Angela's finally like, oh, I've, I've let this go on too long. Rice, take the shot. Rice, take the shot. And... Rice forgot to chamber a bullet, so when he pulls the trigger, nothing happens. No, I th- I think it's actually the the gun the gun jams. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, he has a misfire, so then he has to whatever re put it in the chamber, and then by the time he's doing that, she's got her gun, and she just starts shooting immediately and hits the uh, reporter vampire many times. Yeah, yeah, he gets dusted, and we're left with basically Mike, Jack back alive, and his old fiance Christy standing on the bridge. And you know what I liked. Jack seems very nonchalant about not being Ash anymore. He's just very snarky, very wry. It's as if this has been not even an inconvenience, as if he's just like, he's like, well, I'm here now. What, what of it? Yeah, I think his first line when he comes back, he learns, learns over. He's like, he's like, Mike, you've really aged. And I was like, <laughs> I, think that I was like, wow, he doesn't miss a beat, this guy. Yeah, I liked how cocky he was. I'm like, whoa, just back at it right away. <laughs> But what we have is Michael saying to uh, Kirsty, there you go. You wanted the guy back. Here he is. Look what he is. And I have to say on Jack's side, he's basically like, I don't care about her anymore. Yeah, it is funny. Uh, Jack grabs Kirsty, And he doesn't have some affection for her anyway in that he like grabs her and then leans into her ear and says, get a life. <laughs> and then he jumps off the bridge. <laughs> That's great, though. Wasn't it great? It was great. Like, he jumps off the bridge. He escapes into the water. Jack's now back out and about in the world. Reporter's dead, but we've got Jack back. And it's sort of the end of the standoff on the bridge. And we kind of get a little bit of a, a denouement to the series here, or the, at least this six-episode span of the series anyway. But there's one other thing I, I like on the bridge. Michael's like, I can't believe we let him go. Jack's gone. And Pierce, which I think is consistent with something he did in the earlier episode, he's like, "Hey, it's just one more vampire. That is true. They are very... They don't care too much about closing up loose ends. As long as they've cleaned up the current mess, if there's a few, like, things in the wind, eh, what are you going to do? They're big picture people. If they can stop this uh, nuclear winter, that's the goal. They don't, they're they not going to get rid of every vampire. 
Yeah, they're not going to kill themselves over Jack. He's got like he's he's such small potatoes. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, well, getting to the denouement for this is we kind of see a little bit of a little closing of some of these storylines or at least like some uh, I don't know, I guess some closure would be the best way to say it. Father Pierce finally starts taking his cancer medication that he's been putting off doing for the last four or five episodes. Thank goodness that plot line's done. <laughs> and uh, Kirstie's released to go back to her life, even though she knows about vampires now. They're just like, well, wh- wh- who are you going to tell? And there's a great scene here because she's just like, why did you do that? Why did you bring Jack back to life in front of me? And she like slaps Mike in the face and Mike's just like, I don't know. I didn't know how else to get through to you. So I thought that would get I thought that would change your mind to see that what a monster he is. But I had to agree with her. It was he was pretty jerky the whole time. He's done nothing in these sex six episodes that would make her not only have any feelings for him, but like want to be on his side at all. Like he's been a jerk the entire time to her. I do feel like we finally reached the point where she would stop trying to look after to look fine. I agree. And the final scene of the show is uh, Mike. He's going for a, a nighttime stroll through the streets, and his old partner Jack appears in a in an alley and says, "Mike, don't worry, buddy. We'll be in touch." And then disappears. And then basically, you have Michael sort of like sits and slouches on the side of the of the wall and basically just thinks about his life as it is now. And that's the end of the show. That's a wrap on Ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. Great time. I had a great time with this so far. I did too. I really liked the show. And I don't think we've mentioned it. Maybe we have mentioned it to the audience. I'm not sure. But we are going to do something unprecedented for our podcast next week. Mm-hmm. There was an American pilot made of this series with a returning Idris Elba in in his role. And that, at some point, I guess, ended up on YouTube. So we are going to keep going with Ultraviolet. Watch one last episode next week. The U.S. pilot for an ultraviolet America. Yeah, and we'll see what's the same, what's different, how it's connected, if at all, or if it's just a straight remake. It'd be really interesting to see. I'm very excited to do that. In the meantime, let's let's rate these last two episodes. I think we should get an average from the six core episodes from the series and not include the US remake in Agreed. that average. I think that's unfair. So let's rate these, the, these two and then get the overall series average for us of ultraviolet. I'm going to give episode five, I'm going to give it to my lowest score. And I think I'm actually being a little hard on it. But for whatever reason, I felt like this was a slower episode and it felt like we were taking a pause and it didn't have the momentum that the other episodes had, especially for the second last episode. So I'm only going to give this one a 6.5. Wow. Wow. Although maybe it's a seven. I don't know. I just, for whatever reason, this episode didn't do it for me. I I mean, I will admit I can maybe see what you're saying in that it... it... And maybe there's a little bit of fatigue, too, of how these episodes work as well. I was just grateful. I'd been waiting for Idris Elba's Von Rice to get kind of his episode. Yeah. And it wasn't perfect, but it, it was his episode. And I really enjoyed that about it. I, I'm going to give it a seven. I have to say, though, the moment with him with the coffins and blowing the doors up, that was a great sequence. Absolutely. And then the final episode, Persona Non Grata. I agree with everything you said earlier. I do think this is a a bit of a sloppy episode, but I think just because it was the last episode and they did a pretty good job tying things up, and I also didn't see the vampire's overall plan until the very end, I'm going to go with a 7. I wish it was a little bit better, but I still think it was pretty much a good example of what this show is, so I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I'm in agreement. I'm giving it a 7 as well. I think it's a little sloppy to pull it all together in the end, but it's still a satisfying conclusion conclusion to the tease they've been making this whole time like to find out the final plot line if not to solve it at least Mm -hmm. to be like here's what it's been all about so far 
it was a good fun episode and I, it, the ending really made it all click together so i'm also giving it a seven so can we punch this into the uh continuum drag computer and see what our overall score is i know we were never uh there was never a chance of us uh escaping but uh i think this might be one of our highest rated shows we've ever watched all right let me let me type it in here and find out all right jordan do you want to know what the final series average for us on Ultraviolet is? Yeah, can I guess? Yeah, please. 7.25. Oh, you're not too far off. It's 7.17. Hmm, which is pretty high. Very high episode. And I, I will say, I think a part of the reason is that, and we haven't talked about this at all, but the creator of the show also wrote and directed all six episodes himself. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, a consistency to these episodes. Yeah, I think what you do get is a certain amount of just authorial hand. Even when things aren't working, at least he knows where it's going and he knows where they're headed. So he's able to make it jive. It feels like a whole. And I think it really does it a lot of favors. Even when it's weak, it's strong because at least it seems like there's a vision behind it. I also like that they trusted uh, the viewers enough that they would give you pieces of things and they knew the audience could be patient enough to wait for why we're getting these scenes even things like pierce's cancer i think it's episode two we first see that but don't get a reveal about it till episode four and i really like the way they did this and i it i've other i've seen other shows do that sort of serialization but not as well as i think this show executed so i really liked how well they uh plotted out things like that i agree i agree so i think i know your answer but you would recommend this to people Oh, I definitely would. Yeah, yeah. I, I, not only even people who like vampires, just people who like a little bit more, as weird as is to say, like somewhat more realistic sci-fi. Like for the most part, this is a real world with real wor- world technology. It just happens to have vampires. And I think they did a really good job for executing that and, and its tone. Yeah, I think it's a fun spin on a vampire show. I think if that's something that tickles your fancy, something a little bit different, but in the vampire genre, you, you'd have a good time with the show. Yeah, I agreed. So I, I can't wait to see what the uh, the Americans did to this. Yeah, well, that wraps it up for this episode. If you have any thoughts on the UK Ultraviolet, you can write us at continuumdrag at gmail.com. And of course, on Twitter and Instagram, at continuumdrag, we'll, we'll have some clips from this show. I think there's some good stuff of like vampire things and coffins decompressing and I don't know, a guy coming back from ashes. There's some fun stuff in these episodes yeah. for, the, for that. There's always a vampire exploding. But uh, that almost wraps it all up for us. So we'll come back next week, listener. We'll uh, find out what happens when Code 5s come to America. But until then, Jordan, I'll see you next week. See you then. That'd be hilarious if it was called Code 5s Come to America. (laughs) Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.